Good evening, everyone. We are, of course, here for this wonderful event where we'll discuss this even more amazing book. So uh, I'll say it at the end, but I'll say it now. If you haven't already bought it, uh, you should, and you get a special discount today. So. But what we're here is to discuss this broader subject, and we have an amazing panel to do so. And what I think is that you'll find so fascinating about this panel on the political economy of monetary solidarity and on Belchar's excellent book is that we will really get very different perspectives on it. So, of course, um, our main uh, speaker and guest tonight is Valtra Schelke herself, who is an associate professor in political economy at the European Institute here at the LSE, and who is a world-leading expert on monetary integration and also on many other subjects, uh, and who will, who will, whose book we will discuss today. But we will have, as I say, three speakers who will address it from different perspectives, First, we will have um, Philip Legrand, who is a British political economist and who also, on top of being a writer on, on um, econ political economy, is also someone who's made European policy, so can bring a very uh, excellent perspective on the practicalities of how um, policy comes about. He is the former advisor to the European uh, Commission President, Jose Manuel Barroso, from 2011 to 2014. And after he has given his perspective, we'll have Professor Jonathan White, who's a professor uh, of, uh, of uh, politics here at the LSE. He's also written on many topics, uh, including partisanship and so on, but I think one of the very interesting perspectives he might bring to the debate is that he's written on emergency Europe, so how policy is made when you're facing a crisis such as uh, the Euro crisis. And finally, uh, before we turn to Valtra, we will have uh, a contribution from Professor Helen Thompson, who is Professor of Political Economy at the University of Cambridge, and who also has looked at um, uh, the political and economic world order in crisis, and also at the historical perspective on that, and has a, a new book also on oil and the Western eco uh, economic crisis uh, out this year. Then finally, as I said, we will turn to Valtra, where he can respond to these uh, various contributions and critiques. And uh, for those of you who are on social media, I should say that the hashtag uh, for this is LSE Euro, as you can see on the screen. And if you haven't already done so, if you can turn your phones to silent, that'd be great. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, it's a Great pleasure to be here with you uh, this evening to discuss Valtrod's excellent uh, new book uh, and a great honor to be among such a uh, distinguished uh, panel. I need to start by apologizing. Uh, I've got uh, a cold uh, and a cough. Um, though, unlike Theresa May, uh, I've come prepared uh, with throat lozenges. <laughs> um, so, with a bit of luck, uh, you won't need to give me a standing ovation during awkward moments. Uh, in my talk. <laughs> um, the political economy of Europe's experiment uh, with monetary union uh, is a fascinating uh, and uh, important subject, especially uh, in the aftermath of the worst uh, financial crisis since the 1930s. And I experienced it uh, firsthand uh, in Brussels as independent economic advisor uh, to uh, President Barroso and wrote about it in my own book, uh, European Spring, Why Our Economies and Politics Are in a Mess and How to Put Them Right, which was among the FT's best books of 2014. 
And it's a subject that has also been covered um, by many writers uh, more illustrious uh, than me. So it's a huge credit uh, to Valtraud that she has made an original and thought-provoking uh, contribution to this well-trodden topic. Now, it's generally believed that for a monetary union to work well, its constituent parts need to be similar. In simple terms, if countries are going to share a common official interest rate and a common nominal exchange rate, their economic cycles and structures need to be broadly similar. And they also need to be integrated and flexible enough to be able to adjust uh, when uh, changes affect them differently. That's the essence of what economists call optimal currency area theory. And it's the basis for the common critique, which you've heard thousands of times, that basically the members of the Eurozone are too dissimilar for the monetary union to thrive and ultimately for it to survive. But Valtraud turns that argument on its head. She argues that it's precisely the diversity of the monetary union that creates the potential for economic gains from sharing and diversifying risks. In effect, a monetary union is a bit like an insurance pool. If everyone's alike, there are no potential gains from pooling risks. But if they're different, in particular, if there is a tendency uh, for some to, doing, some to be doing well when others aren't, then they can all gain uh, from sharing and diversifying risks. Hence the slightly confusing title of her book, The Political Economy of Monetary Solidarity. Because by solidarity, she doesn't mean fellow feeling, but rather deliberate or at least consciously tolerated risk sharing. And by monetary solidarity, she doesn't mean uh, simply through monetary policy, uh, but through all the channels that might exist in a monetary union. Now, the most obvious and probably most controversial uh, form that that, that uh, risk-taking, risk-sharing uh, could take is government uh, transfer payments, for example, in the form of a Eurozone budget uh, which uh, President Macron uh, is proposing. But that risk-sharing can also take place uh, through markets. For example, if demand is booming uh, in one country, uh, that will tend to uh, boost exports uh, from another country where demand uh, is depressed. And likewise, uh, financial returns uh, on assets in countries that are doing well uh, can substitute for uh, depressed profitability at home. But here's the catch, because while the diversity of Eurozone members provides the potential for large economic gains from sharing and diversifying risks, that diversity also makes it politically difficult to cooperate to realize those gains. And it's precisely in a crisis when that risk sharing is needed most that that cooperation is likely to break down. What Valkraud calls 
the paradox of diversity. So the big question is, to what extent in practice can we see uh, such gains from risk sharing in the Eurozone? And on the contrary, might the combination of the Eurozone's design flaws and the bad decisions of Eurozone policymakers during the crisis actually have amplified those risks and exacerbated the losses, not just of DESAs, but of the system as a whole. Now, on the positive side, Valtraud reminds us of some important but often uh, neglected benefits of the monetary union. Con countries that would otherwise plausibly have tied their currency uh, to uh, the Deutschmark in an unstable exchange rate mechanism, shadowing the Bundesbank that set interest rates solely based on German needs, now benefit from a Germanic hard currency uh, with low inflation, uh, low interest rates, and a say in setting ECB interest rates, which sets them with respect to conditions in the Eurozone as a whole. And in contrast to Asian emerging economies that have felt compelled to run current account surpluses and amass huge currency reserves since the crisis in 1997 and 1998, the euro initially enabled poorer southern European countries to import large amounts of capital from northern Europe with the potential to finance catch-up growth and without the resulting current account deficits ending up in a currency crisis. And that could have offered huge gains. You know, higher growth-enhancing investment, higher living standards in southern Europe, higher, more diversified returns for northern savers, and higher exports for northern companies. Unfortunately, those capital flows didn't take the form of equity financing productive investment. They primarily took the form of bank loans financing speculative property investment and indeed consumption, mostly private but also public uh, in the case of Greece and to a lesser extent Portugal. Now then, as you remember, the Western financial bubble bursts in 2007-8 and for an initially that the Eurozone played a role as a shock absorber for the crisis-hit countries. But then, a series of catastrophically bad policy decisions destabilized and almost destroyed the Eurozone. Instead of creditors taking losses, failed banks were bailed out by national governments, initially for domestic reasons, and in the case of the Irish bailout, of 2010 at the insistence of the ECB, creating the basis for the diabolic sovereign bank loop that Valtraud discusses extensively. Instead of writing down the debts of an insolvent Greek government in 2010, Eurozone policymakers pretended that it was merely illiquid. It was simply going through temporary difficulties in funding itself. And on that basis, breached uh, the no bailout clause and compounded Greece's problems 
by lending to it European taxpayers' money on punitive terms, ostensibly out of solidarity, but actually to bail out French and German banks, a move that has immiserated Greece and locked it indefinitely in a debtor's prison. Merkel and Sarkozy then made matters worse in Deauville by making the opposite mistake, suggesting that all governments that were suffering liquidity crises would be treated as if they were insolvent and have their debts written down. And all of that creates a huge financial panic, which you'll remember uh, from a few 2011-12. And the, the ECB, for years and years, refused to quell that panic, instead encouraging governments lurch into ever more extreme collective austerity that causes an unnecessary double-dip recession and perversely pushes public debt even higher. Until finally, in the summer of 2012, Mario Draghi utters those magic words that he'll do whatever it takes uh, to preserve uh, the euro. And markets believe him, although it remains to be seen how the OMT would work in practice. Now, all of that destabilizes the eurozone to a point of near collapse. It exacerbated its collective economic and financial losses from the crisis, and it pushed the burden of those losses from private creditors to taxpayers and from Northern Europe to Southern Europe. That wasn't risk sharing, let alone solidarity. It was arson and assault and battery. At the same time, Valtraud reportedly reminds us that even in the midst of this financial mayhem of frozen interbank lending, massive capital flight, and potential euro breakup, the target two payment system that's at the core of the euro, much decried in Germany, ensured the continuation of smooth payments and, and avoided a disruption to trade finance. And for sure, that's no mean feat. Now, since the summer of 2012, and particularly since the ECB launched, finally launched QE in the beginning of 2015, the record is more positive, with ECB lowering bond spreads and its zero interest rates redistributing from creditors to debtors. But if you look at economic adjustments since the crisis, it hasn't just been asymmetric. It's been one-sided. Countries that were running current account deficits have been forced into surplus. And countries like Germany, which were already running current account surpluses, have shifted into even bigger surpluses, even though we created a macroeconomic imbalance procedure that is meant to address dangerous imbalances like that. In essence, Germany has sought to impose its dysfunctional economic model onto the rest of the Eurozone. A beggar thy neighbor and beggar thyself strategy of holding down wages in order to promote export competitiveness when you should be trying to boost productivity and pay higher wages. And the enduring legacy of the crisis is a much tighter fiscal straitjacket that rigidly prevents national governments from responding to a deep economic slump 
that narrowly treats each Eurozone member as it was an island, neglecting the overall fiscal stance of the Eurozone and how it interacts with monetary policy, and perversely prevents productive investment that would boost demand now and future growth and future tax revenues and therefore actually strengthen public finances. And if you think about it, we're in a period of record low interest rates with resources lying idle all over the place. And it's a tragic missed opportunity not to be investing enough in the future and not therefore to be promoting greater risk sharing. Now the good news of course is that now finally the Eurozone is doing better than expected this year. There's growth everywhere, even in Greece. Unemployment is falling, albeit from heights. But if you look at the performance over the, over the decade since the crisis, it's truly catastrophic. GDP per capita is the same as it was a decade ago. It's done worse than the US, much worse than the US since the crisis. And incredibly, it's done worse than the European countries that remained on the gold standard until 1936 during the Great Depression. You've seen most Europeans suffer a lost decade of stagnant or falling wages. You see scarily high unemployment in Southern Europe, especially among young people. You see a common currency that was meant to bring Europeans together, that has fostered economic divergence and political division, held together more by the fear of the cost of breaking it up than by the belief that it makes Europeans better off. And so what you see is that the political capital of the European project, built up over decades, has been eroded in just a few years. Animosity among Europeans has stored, stereotypes have been, re been revived, and new grievances created. And there is a burning sense of injustice that policymakers are incompetent, unaccountable, self-serving, and corrupt. And all of that feeds into the xenophobic and national resentment that is corroding belief and support for Europe. So let me briefly conclude with a word on the future. With the election of President Macron, further integration of the Eurozone is back on the agenda. And here too, Valtraud makes an important and original contribution because she questions whether further integration is necessary. She sees no need for a Eurozone budget or indeed for common borrowing through Eurobonds. And instead, she favors targeted reinsurance, reinsurance in the form of the creation of the European equivalent of America's Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation with a fiscal backstop. And in, in essence, what that would do is resolve failed banks and provide uh, deposit insurance. And that's an absolutely excellent idea, and I encourage you to buy and read Valtraud's book to find out more. Thank you. Thank you so much to Philip Legrand, although you know, he ended on a positive note. Of course, this was a somewhat bleak, bleak diagnosis, and to an extent also prognosis. Yeah, we might exactly be able to talk more about that. Let's see if uh, Jonathan uh, can provide a more positive outlook we hear these days we need to be more, more optimistic 
about the future? Yeah, I guess we can either do that or uh, escape into the past. And I, I might start off by um, stepping back a century, possibly, possibly two. Um, well, I, I really like the book in one respect um, at the outset. I think it's a book which is authentically in the tradition of political economy. The term, of course, appears in the, in the title of the book. And I think it is uh, genuinely political economy in the sense that this is a book which is interested in the dynamics of economics, but perhaps first and foremost to the extent to which they can be connected to political stakes rather than to the uh, intellectual, perhaps even aesthetic, uh, appeal of economic modelling. And perhaps more specifically, it's in the tradition of political economy because, of course, this organising idea that Baltrad has picked up about diversity as a source of economic integration, of socio-economic integration, uh, is, of course, uh, a classical idea in Adam Smith and David Ricardo. Uh, and to, to me, as a, I guess I read this as a sociologist, it's a, it's a trope, of course, in uh, the work of someone like Emile Durkheim, who I think uh, perhaps starts off with an intuition which is really quite similar to Valtraud's, which is that uh, it's exactly the difference of parts that make a society rather than their likeness. Of course, for Durkheim, the difference between modern societies and traditional societies is exactly centred on this particular difference. Whereas traditional societies are those which depended on uniformity of beliefs, norms and values, often religious uniformity, what he called mechanical solidarity and some type of collective conscience. What's very specific for Durkheim about industrial society, modern society, is precisely that it's not to be thought of as held together by a unity of beliefs, norms and values. It's funny, of course, when we talk about the European Union, uh, we often, I think, commonsensically appeal to what Durkheim would have thought of as a very old-fashioned, traditional concept of social integration. When we talk about European identity and seek to identify the presence or absence of such a thing so you, through Eurobarometer polls, we are, in a sense, looking for something which, for one of the classical sociologists of modernity, was exactly that which marked out traditional as opposed to modern societies. Modern societies, by contrast, were held together by a division of labour in which different sectors duplicated each other neither in their activities nor in their outlooks. It is, of course, a theory of specialisation and interdependence. So Valchaud's, uh, I think, starting intuition for how to think about the European Union is, one might say, refreshingly modern in a context in which our commonsensical thinking about the EU often appeals to a notion of uh, something close to the mechanical solidarity that Durkheim associated with traditional societies. Of course, Valtrod does not want to suggest that solidarity is already practiced in any great degree in the contemporary EU, but that the economic diversity of the Eurozone offers the right conditions for it. I guess one might say another word on, on what solidarity means for Valtrod. Of course, solidarity can be a positive concept. Solidarity can be an ethical concept. I think it's fair to say that for Durkheim, it was a positive concept. It was about how people treat and interact with one another, 
rather than a question of virtue, a question of obligations. It was a relationship, perhaps, of interdependence, possibly even of mutual interest. No objective standard of fair relations, whatever actors find mutually beneficial. I think this is also a key point in Valchard's book. One of the chapters, chapter two, I believe, goes into some depth on why, when thinking about the place of diversity of economic models in holding together the Eurozone, one should exactly try and think in terms of the interests of those different parts of the Eurozone in coming together, rather than try and found some kind of model of their unity based on altruism, sympathies, fellow feeling, and so on. This, of course, would be perhaps the basis already for one question that Valtry might want to respond to. If this is an account of integration through diversity held together by the common interests of the parts of the Eurozone, our interests ever enough as the basis of any type of political association, certainly of any type of desirable political association. If you rely only on self-interest, does it not always at some point break down the powerful exit at the moment when it becomes burdensome? Now, I think it's fair to say that, uh, to continue my references to Durkheim, I think it's fair to say that even Durkheim, who wanted to say that the modern social order is precisely held together not by some notion of a common identity, a collective conscience, but by the differences of his parts. I think even he never quite was able to reconcile to his satisfaction the idea that interest alone, the division of labor alone, could be a sufficient basis for thinking about the unity of an association. In fact, in the same book, in the same division of labor analysis in which he makes the distinction between mechanical and organic solidarity, he also has this to say, there is nothing less constant than interest. Today it unites me to you, tomorrow it will make me your enemy. Such a cause can only give rise to transient relations and passing associations. So this is someone who wants to think about the specificity of societies as to do with interests, the division of labor, and yet cannot quite shed the thought there is some type of normative supplement, some type of normative substrate that any durable political association needs to depend on. And so I would wonder, following Valchart's thought, that we should try to think of the Eurozone as ultimately an association of interests. How far can we take that? At what point do we have to make some kind of appeal to some notion of a shared common good, a European common good? Can we think of the unity of this association doing away with such concepts as people like Durkheim tried to do, but perhaps never to their satisfaction were able to do. Well, there's, I think, one important respect, at least in which Valtraud's account is very different from these points of departure in classical sociology and classical political economy, and that, of course, is with this emphasis on risk. I think risk is probably a future-oriented concept. It's probably fair to say that Durkheim, with his analysis of the division of labor, was interested in interdependence in a moving present. But of course, risk, when we start to talk this as the foundation for an understanding of integration through difference, we are suggesting that 
there is a kind of uh, ongoing, open-ended nature to the association in question. And of course, this potentially is a very constructive move. If the danger of any model of society based on a division of labor is always the power relations that exist at any given moment in time, the inequalities in the distribution of roles by which the association is held together. Well, one might say if one introduces a future orientation to that, one can resolve perhaps some of those problems. Some of the difficulties of those power distributions at any given moment in time are potentially uh, things that can be reconciled over in the long run. It becomes beneficial to all, even if at any given moment a division of labor is highly unequal in effects. So I think this is one of the interesting things of the book and one of the things which is perhaps in tune with quite a lot of contemporary uh, political economy, actually, to think about how one might think of associations with a cross-temporal emphasis, a future orientation, something that goes beyond simply a division of labor in a moment of time but incorporates with the idea of risk the future. But here I would ask a few more questions of Valchard exactly to do with the the rationality of risk that she brings in by giving this concept a central place in her account. Is an association based on the sharing and diversifying of risks a desirable one? The kind of sociology that I read often treats risk as a dirty word. Many of you will have read Ulrich Beck. That's not the only context in contemporary sociology where risk, risk is a much analyzed and analyzed with a view from askance. It is a concept that I think gets a lot of critical analysis in many spheres of contemporary political sociology. And why might that be? Well, one concern, perhaps, is an association which one founds on risk in these terms. Does it ask too little? Is risk always a politics of coping rather than of preventing? To cast something as a risk is to focus efforts on adapting to it rather than warding it off. Is that appropriate? Certainly in the economic domain. There may be domains where that is a very valid way of thinking. But is it appropriate to think of the economy in terms of risks? Supposing we treat high un unemployment as a risk that the country faces, don't we then cast it as a brute fact, a shock, something that just happens, something akin to floods, storms and the like, to natural disasters? Sure, we might try to prepare for a risk. We might try to alleviate its effects, for example, by social security. And, of course, we might impute negligence to those who don't prepare sufficiently for a risk. But is there nonetheless a sense in which, by casting something as such, that we divert from the pursuit of structural remedies to underlying causes and for more radical solutions? What if private economic power needs to be challenged and not just adapted to? If we build into our very understanding of the Eurozone, into our very understanding of an economic association, the idea that it's all about risk, to what extent do we invite a politics of coping rather than of more structural change? A similar thought, exactly to do with the future orientation of risk. What does talking of risks imply for our understanding of the present? I think it's fair to, to say that risk as a concept always seems to refer us to things that might happen, 
depends on the problems being still to come, not least so that their asymmetrical effects are unknown and therefore can be a basis of the association. Does that mean that risk relies on the idea of a normal baseline in the present, that the present is somehow basically okay, that we are not already in difficult times, but difficult times are pushed into the future as something which may hit, but that we must treat the present as something like a background normal. To put it differently, does it overlook the extent to which the status quo may already be a reason for solidarity rather than simply that which is to come, that to which risk directs us? And the third question, again, at some level of abstraction, I'm reading this book uh, intentionally in a slightly different way from our other two commenters today. To what extent does this rationality of risk inevitably privilege elite judgment? What can the ordinary person say about risk? Can the rationality of risk contribute anything to democratizing an elite project such as the European Union, such as the Eurozone, or must it further its technocratic <coughs> tendencies? Here I don't mean what if taxpayers don't like seeing money cross borders, but rather who's qualified to identify what counts as a risk for which solidarity is therefore relevant, who can act as a check on the self-appointed experts of risk and of mutual advantage, how does one make this an intelligible basis of association? Well, I'm going to stop at this point. I think these are some general questions that can be posed of any account that puts an accent on risk as Val Child has chosen to do. I think they are follow-ons from an, an intellectual move in the book, which for me is of great interest, this combination of an idea of integration, socioeconomic integration through difference, but given this distinctive under-Kymian inflection, whereby we give a cross-temple focus, we talk about the idea of diversity's dynamic payoff in the indefinite future as the basis of what the Eurozone is all about. I'll stop there. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to Professor Jonathan White. We'll now turn to Professor Helen Thompson. Okay, first let me say it's a great pleasure for me to be talking here about the Euro at the LSE. I began my academic life as a PhD student at the LSE, doing my PhD on British, the British Conservative Government and the European Exchange Rate Mechanism. So this seems like some kind of circle that is um, completed by me coming back to talk about this subject. The second thing I want to say is, is, is that this is a, a really excellent book. And you might say that that's an obvious thing for somebody sitting here talking to Veltrow next to her. To her. <laughs> but we do really disagree. So. <laughs> and I really learned a lot from this. And I was persuaded by aspects of the argument that I wasn't expecting to be persuaded by um, when I started. And that goes, I think, to the original insight that um, Philippe has already drawn out in what um, Veltrow has done in this book, which is really to show that economic diversity of the euro is not the problem. I expected to be able to make an argument about monetary policy in relation to this, and after several attempts, I abandoned it and just decided to concentrate my comments on um, questions about the political possibilities of solidarity um, within the, um, the Eurozone. And really, all my comments are three ways of coming at the same point, which is just how difficult political, political solidarity is, and being sceptical about whether it can be um, created. 
And I want to go at this in three different ways. The first is to start talking about America. The second is to talk about Greece. And the th finally, I want to say something about um, democracy. So I'm just going to take up one particular part of the, the generally very persuasive story that Valtrow draws, Valtrow draws about how America established its monetary union. Because if you try to make a comparison between the Eurozone and America's monetary union, the first thing you notice is that nothing happens in the same order in both um, cases. And I want to start with some, what I see as a political fallout of what some people were arguing, particularly sort of 2012-ish, was what the Eurozone needed to do, which is what Alexander Hamilton did in 1790, which was basically to take the debt of the individual states of what was now the Federal Republic of the United States and to federalize um, that um, debt. Now, ultimately, the fiscal project that Hamilton saw this as part of, indeed one might say the political project of federalism, of creating a federal America as opposed to a state-based America, that Hamilton saw this as part of, failed over the next um, 30 years. But what I think is important is seeing how... Um, Hamilton's initial move, the federalization of state debt, how important that was in terms of the future disintegration of the United States, the, the breakdown of the original United States that came with the Civil War in 1861. I think that the federalization of state debt was a fundamentally disintegrative um, political um, act, and it was so because the risk-sharing of debt federalization was asymmetrical, and that asymmetry was politically um, load-bearing. So I want to start by sort of filling in something of the politics of the story that um, is in the book. And that is, is, we need to start here with the, the fact that um, what Hamilton proposed doing in 1790 was deeply controversial. There were four states in particular, three of which were southern, and the most consequential of which was Virginia, which was at the time the richest and the most populous state in, uh, in the, um, the Union, that was opposed, bitterly opposed to um, the federalization um, of the debt. In the case of Virginia, Virginia had pretty much paid off its state debts. There were also very few creditors in Virginia. So as far as Virginians, Virginians saw it, this was a question of them being asked to pay future taxes in order to service debt that had been run up by others and where the benefits of it, the creditors would be, would be the, the benefits of it would be received by creditors in, um, in other states. The only way in which federalization of state debt went through was because there was this infamous or became infamous dinner in Washington. Actually, I don't think the dinner itself was in Washington. I'll, I'll refrain from saying where I think the dinner was. And then a compromise was reached whereby the Southerners, led by um, Thomas Jefferson and um, James Madison, agreed to federalization of state debt in exchange for the capital being moved to Washington, um, D.C. Now, what's striking about this, though, is, is that the Virginia state legislature the same year still passed a remonstrance saying that federalization of state debt was um, unconstitutional. So if we try and put this in a bit more schematic language, we might say that Virginia was made a side payment to acquiesce to debt federalization, and it was accepted by individuals, two individuals, Thomas Jefferson and, and James Madison, rather than the Virginian um, state um, legislature. At that point, there were influential politicians in Virginia in the state legislature who would have chosen disunion over carrying on and allowing federalization of state um, debt to happen. But what happened, I think, I mean, this is a bit of an oversimplification, but what stopped, if you like, that disintegration, the possible disintegration of the um, then United States, was that Madison and Jefferson changed sides. 
and they actually joined their fellow Virginians in opposing the next moves that Hamilton made, particularly about the, um, the Bank of America. And what you get out of all this fighting is basically the first party system in the United States between the Federalists and the Republicans. The Republicans, not our present day Republicans, but the then Republicans, were led by um, Jefferson and Madison. They became effectively the official opposition. The rallying core was the expansion of federal um, power. And both of them, um, Jefferson in 1800 for two terms, and then Madison ended up becoming um, president um, of the um, United States. So in this sense, what began as dissent over debt mutualization soon produced an organized political um, opposition um, in the, um, the United um, States. But I think what it did in doing so was effectively to create a set of arguments about the limits of federal power and claims about the unconstitutionality uh, of various federal moves. Now, as it happened, Jefferson and Madison both themselves penned arguments that were later used by the Southern secessionists in the 1860s, or 1850s, I should um, say, um, saying uh, as to why, well, they didn't say this explicitly, but they could be read as implying that ultimately the states had to be the, the ultimate arbiters of constitutionality. They didn't do it actually over these fiscal issues, they did it over the Alien and Sedition um, Acts. But there's a clear line that lies from the southern sectional grievances of the 1790s around the expansion of federal power and the state debt, debt issue that's going to run all the way through um, to um, 1861 for, and, and the civil, um, civil War. So why does all this matter for the Eurozone? The first of them is, I think, because the Eurozone can't possibly go through what America went through to get to the artificial, I would say, solidarity that was created by the Southern defeat in the Civil War, because remember that monetary union in the United States didn't take place until after the Civil War had occurred. So the South had been militarily defeated by the time it was being asked to join a monetary union about which it was in many ways with the Western states a sectional um, loser. Europe can't go down that path, it's just um, unthinkable. Actually, trying to secure political solidarity has got to be done without recourse to civil war and um, violence. The second is, I think, is, is that, that there are clearly also limits to how far democracy could be um, dispensed with. And I'm going to come back to this democracy point as my, my third big um, point. Is, is what got America out of the potential crisis of the 1790s was, was, that, was that opposition to executive power could form and it could form led by those who had this particular grievance about the expansion of federal power and the place that debt um, played um, in that. But as we know, in the Eurozone and in the European Union more generally, executive power is not democratically contested. So that kind of safeguard that was there for opposition to the moves that were made to try to make, I wouldn't call it a, a monetary union at that point, but... Uh, a, a fisc sorry, a federal ap approach to fiscal matters work doesn't exist uh, in, the, in, in the Eurozone. Let's turn then to Greece. And I'm going to just concentrate what I want to say here on the 2000, um, i get my years right, 2015, July 2015, because Philip's already adequately covered what I wanted to say about 2010 and the first Greek bailout. So this is um, the, the, the third um, Greek um, bailout. Now, I might be a bit unfair to you here, but one way, I think, of reading what your argument about Greece is, is, yes, it's awful for Greece, but there was no alternative. That might be 
slightly unfair, but <laughs> I will do it for, for my purposes, for my rhetorical purposes. <laughs> so, um, and I want to particularly look at um, this, say, what happened in, 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 um, in, in July um, 2015, because I think you're quite right to say, look, there's no possibility in a, in a, a supranational monetary union that democratic politics in terms of having referendums can really come into it. That might not be very pleasant, but it's also just like um, the way that um, political um, reality is. Now, I think that's a problem for domestic political order for reasons that I'm um, going to come to. But as I say, once you're a member of the monetary union, they're the rules, that's, um, that's political um, reality. But it seems to me what's significant about the 2015 episode, so this is the episode where um, the discussions are going on about the third Greek bailout, the um, Cyprus ends up calling the referendum, the Greek voters vote against the terms of the bailout, and then the terms of the bailout are uh, made even more draconian uh, after the referendum than they were um, before, is that it seems pretty clear in terms of, of what has come out since, and in, in, including in what Schleiber said in the last few days, actually, in that interview that uh, he gave, that the, the terms that Greece was offered by the finance ministers of the Eurozone um, at that point, after the referendum had taken place, were constructed to be so deliberately awful that there was no possibility, as they saw it, that um, the Greek government could possibly accept them, So, i.e. that they were given to Greece with the idea of kicking them out of the Eurozone. And that that then did not happen, both because Merkel made a small, relatively small concession to, to Cyprus in those long hours of negotiations, if it could be called negotiations, that um, took um, place, but also, strangely, because Cyprus was actually willing for Greece to be humiliated even more rather than for um, Greece to um, leave the, um, the Eurozone. So I think in this sense is there actually was no willingness whatsoever from beginning to end of the Greek crisis to share any kind of political risk with Greece, that actually once Greece had stopped being a contagion problem for French-German banks, as Philippe was talking about um, earlier, then as far as um, the finance ministers at least were concerned, I think Merkel's intentions might be debated um, here, then Greece could be um, dispensed with. So in this sense, I think we better hope there is something a little bit economically singular about Greece, or, or at least actually perhaps that there are lines that won't be crossed with other countries that were crossed with um, Greece if we're going to think that, that, that um, the Eurozone's got um, a future for its southern um, European um, members. So final set of reflections then is on um, democracy uh, itself. Now, as I said, I do agree with Artrav that a supranational monetary union with an independent central bank cannot accommodate the changes and tumult of democratic um, politics. But I think where I part company um, is that the tacit assumption, at least, that monetary union doesn't then produce first-order political problems for the democratic political states that participate in it. Now, in part and this is, I think, a point in which we actually agree, is, is that we need to look here at what happened in Italy in the autumn of 2011, the situation where effectively the ECB and the German and French governments acted in collusion with the Italian president to remove Berlusconi's government um, from power and replace him with the Monte government and the technocratic um, Italian um, cabinet, a situation where the two most powerful states in the Eurozone plus the ECB can determine who is going to be the democratic 
Lee, head of government of a Eurozone member, I think can't possibly be justified by, as required by participation in any kind of um, single um, currency. I think that if we get to a situation where there is some kind of veto power being exercised by the dominant players within the, um, the Euro Eurozone, then democratic membership, sorry, democratic consent to membership of the Euro um, will eventually break down. And I think we can see the risk of that dynamic playing itself out in terms of what's going on in Italian um, politics um, at the um, moment. I would go further than that on the democratic politics front, though, and I would say is, is that it has to be, or I'm going to put this differently, it is a politically serious matter when democratic politics itself can play no part in error correction over economic um, policy. Now, I think it's the case that error correction has taken place in the Eurozone over the um, past um, eight years, and I think those people who say that the Eurozone is incapable of any adjustment, that's just not true if you look at what's happened um, since um, 2009. Indeed, we might say that this is Monetary Union Mark II, with a, with a new set of constitutional rules for that union compared to those that were drawn up um, at um, Maastricht. But if we look at the changes that have taken place, only the rules of the fiscal compact have been subject to any kind of um, legitimation via ratification of a treaty, and these are actually rules that aren't actually enforced by the Commission. The really load-bearing error um, correction that has gone on has been done by the European Central Bank in terms of the, um, the first of all, the Securities and Market Programme, the OMT, though it's never been used in practice, the long-term refinancing operation, quantitative um, easing, negative um, interest um, rates. And there hasn't been any legitimation in any democratic sense of this new European um, Central Bank, with the exception, you might argue, of in Germany, where the German Constitutional Court has made a succession of rulings about the constitutionality in relation to German basic law, the compatibility, compatibility in relation to, um, the, to, to German um, basic law um, of these moves by the um, ECB. And that, I think, grants Germany... Uh, a newly privileged position in the, in the Eurozone, one that's different, I think, from the arguments that Philippe's making about its um, econ economic um, model, and it, in practice, grants the Bundesbank a privileged position um, at the, um, the EC um, table. Meanwhile, individual member states must take the strain within their own do domestic political order um, of the, um, the grievances generated. Here, there can be no risk-sharing because consent to political authority and ultimately in the final instance the threat of, of, of coercion to secure it if and when necessary remains a matter for the nation state and not for the eurozone and in terms of that basic problem first order political problem we can see something of, of that working its way through Spanish politics uh, over the, um, the last um, few weeks so in this sense I think that the absence of political union for the eurozone is consequential the problem of political order is the first political problem and it has to be dealt with ultimately where authority, final authority and coercive um, power um, lie. So to go back where I started, I think the lesson of America is, is that in some sense this is an extraordinarily odd monetary union that the, the Americans pursued because really political union was created by destruction. 
and that political union by destruction was the necessary condition on which um, monetary union actually then um, took um, place. And this is just not a path that Europe can go down. So, so Valto, that's an excellent set of excellent and very diverse comments for you yeah. to respond to and reflect on. I will just um, abuse my position here and act, uh, sort of add one question for you to maybe respond. And that's when, if we go five years back and you were sitting in a hall like this or around a table with sort of distinguished people like on this stage or distinguished economists, the general diagnosis was the Eurozone would not survive as it was. Certainly Greece would fall by the wayside. <coughs> And so what I would like to invite you to do, given your, your analysis, to think in five years' time, where are we going to be? So are we going to have a Eurozone with the same members that we have now? Are we going to have Macron's vision of what that Eurozone will look like? Are we going to have the sort of German finance ministry continuing to, what is it, export its dysfunctional economic model with the asymmetries that Philippe pointed to? So if you could just sort of try and be a forecaster for us and think, what does your analysis tell us about where we'll be in five years' time? I thought you'd give me a nice, easy question. Um, because recently I was in Brussels to uh, introduce my book and so on, and Daniel Gross at the end of it said, so Vajra, tell us, how will the EU look in 2030? And I said, Daniel, I will be able to tell you in 2032, <laughs> because that's my job as an academic. Um, to interpret backward why it made sense or not so much because the crisis potentially is there. The nice, easy question that you put me, and actually this is partly how I wanted to get into my hopefully brief response, um, is that if you listen five years ago of what's going to happen, 2012, everybody, and every argument you could hear, you would have expected we are not sitting here with an existing euro area, right? It, it should have imploded. And it, were, it, it died the near death. That is true. But this is then my interest. How could it survive and do now even better than uh, everybody then uh, uh, said it would? I think the euro area is still in grave danger, that this time comes actually from a much more systemic problem, namely what do you do when a country is very highly indebted slow growth and can't somehow get out of this trap. And the low growth makes every uh, you know, crisis ratio, you know, debt to GDP, turn into a real uh, dangerous and, and crisis indicator. And at some point, the markets will take against you. So Italy is a case. And my book tries to not say, oh, it's all wonderful, and you know, we get ever more solidaristic in this wonderful union. No. At the bottom lies to explain both the extraordinary achievement of that this historically unprecedented experiment so far has succeeded in the sheer sense of hanging still together, um, and at the same time, why it is always so fragile and so at risk. I personally don't think whether there will be a finance minister or not that will not make much of a difference to that problem that I'm talking about. Because even Macron's ideas, as much as I like this fresh air uh, of somebody who really thinks hard and thinks a bit for everybody else, um, he 
his fiscal ideas do not address the real issues, and that is debt, the stocks of debt and not the flows and the, the stabilizing uh, uh, budgetary transfers that you could have. But let me so get briefly into response to each one of them. And first of all, also thank you all for coming. Um, it's really wonderful to see so many students, colleagues, and friends here, and some are actually two of this. So um, that's a really nice thing after you have written a book like this. Philippe, uh, he did a wonderful job. I think I should take the first part of, of his, his speech and play that to students when I want to explain what my book is about because he did a better job than I could do. He then moved slowly into his own interpretation of the crisis, which is, of course, much more skeptical than I did. This is what a few years of policy advice in Brussels does to you, <laughs> I guess. And, of course, it would be a damned squib if I say at the end, oh, an FDIC, a Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation like in the U.S., would solve all these problems, the you know, misery of, of uh, people in Greece but also elsewhere, youth that cannot find uh, adequate employment and so on. I don't think that FDIC would solve all that. But I'm trying to understand what kind of options does it provide, for example, for young people. I have a chapter on migration where I say, how good a risk-sharing mechanism is that given, and that's not a monetary solidarity example, but the theory of optimum currency areas that Philippe also nicely summarized for you, <clears throat> does always say migration is the way to be flexible enough when you have still these asymmetric shocks, idiosyncratic shocks, because you're different. And I'm saying it is an important insurance mechanism for individuals, and the social citizenship rights that the EU has developed are extraordinarily generous, and they are actually redistributive. And if you compare that to the United States, I think you would rather want to be a migrant in Europe than in the United States. That has partly to do with the, uh, the U.S. welfare state being much less generous. But I also say it is one that doesn't solve our territorial problems because it actually also creates disadvantage for the, the regions between which migrants uh, uh, go. It follows the Matthew principle, just like financial markets. Those who have shall be given. So these young, active, usually better educated, not necessarily better skilled, people move to the well-functioning economies, booming economies of the north, making them even better functioning. So you, might be, you may not want to promote that in and of itself. That is, to me, another project. But what you have is the European stability mechanism that dwarfs the IMF. At the height of, of, the, of the lending, the IMF had about 112, 120 billion euros lent mostly to European countries. That was the highest amount the, the, the IMF ever had out there. At the same time, the ESM had lent three times as much. So to say this is no solidarity whatsoever, I find a bit disingenuous. That is a big ask to make when you had always said no such bailout fund will be created. It came with very harsh conditionality, and I'm not defending that on any account. But nobody has ever given so in the history of sovereign lending to each other's countries to each other, this is an extraordinarily big bailout fund. I mentioned social citizenship and 
thank for, uh, thanks for mentioning to Philippe the target two thing. That is a very techno technical thing. It's a cross-border payments platform that you need in a currency union where you say we have still national central banks like the United States has. This, this cross-border payments mechanism functioned like a trade insurance when you have a sudden stop of capital. We have no such thing for Latin America, and they have very often suffered very heavily from this. There are studies that say, you know, 10% of your GDP you lose over time when you have a sudden stop. And that, that link to the real economy was stopped through something like that. Uh, that's no mean feat because, as Philippe mentioned, in Germany there was a campaign against this because it was portrayed by an economist who likes to run campaigns um, that this is all the Germans Bundesbank lending, uh, lending its printing press to the southerners. It was a complete misrepresentation of what it was, and it's my best example I can have for what I mean with monetary solidarity that comes as a byproduct, indeed not intentional, as a byproduct of other agendas, typically national agendas. It's not a pretty sight, but solidarity in effect in its outcome, it still is. This brings me to the question, questions that Jonathan had, and I'm particularly grateful to him because David Soskis had to cancel for a good reason um, and at short notice, and I had to ask Jonathan to step in, and he was so kind to do that. Um, so his first question to me was, is it true, can we really do only with an interest-based notion of solidarity? Frankly, I don't think we can, and this is probably the reason why, for example, the UK now wants to go out. It has, in a way, a purely utilitarian relationship with it that has probably to do with its history because I don't think that the UK is more utilitarian than everybody else, but it has not the same feeling uh, this EU and then this extreme uh, um, expression of, of integration and, and cooperation that a common currency requires, uh, it just is not signed up to this project like this. But I make that myself as a, a kind of methodological assumption to stake the cards against me. If you talk about solidarity and then you assume altruism and you assume a common we feeling, then it's easy to explain. If you say, I must be able to say this is in, as uh, Peter Baldwin, who wrote a history on the politics of social solidarity, where I took the cue from, from my own title, this is generalized and reciprocal self-interest. And he traces the building of the welfare state like this, that it is not built on some big, oh, we come together and we are one citizen now and help each other out. No. The middle classes want something for them, and then the others say, well, if they get that, then we should get that too, and so on and so forth. And nobody is particularly inclined to, to be solidaristic. And this is then a more robust argument for that solidarity happens against the intentions of actors. This is the research project that this book tries to, to answer. But if you, push, if you push me to answer it, I think I would agree with you you sometimes have to uh, dispense disbelief and do trust that another member state will act in good faith against the odds. And that's one of the problems and one of the lasting legacies of this crisis. Um, 
I want to ask <coughs> you ask me about uh, this, does this reliance on risk not necessarily privilege, uh, privilege elite uh, views? Yes, I do. It does. I, I, I think it does mostly, and I think I. It is just true that it's undesirable, but it is like that. The European integration is an elite project to which people may sign up, and it is not the case that every, you know, that uh, the EU is completely unpopular, but more or less it is something that people like you study and um, that defines. It's like all policymakers, it defines the risks it can address and those who define and ask agenda setting there is, of course, bodies like the ECB, like the Commission, and member states with their own ideas that come from, you know, the more technocratic side of that body. Which raises, of course, this question about democracy. But before I do that, let me also say one of my real attempts in this book was having a kind of systematic comparison with the United States. So when I talk about migration, I also look about what is the other rights of, of migrants, inner migrants, so U.S. migrants in the United States. How does the cross-border payments mechanism in the U.S. look like and had it the same anomalies that we saw during the crisis with Target 2 and so on, which we did. Um, so, and I look also at the history of the United States as a monetary union. To make, for example, the point that if they had a choice, they should rather have done it like the Europeans did. Let me start with the central bank. The United States was in the Western Hemisphere for almost 100 years one of the most unstable uh, monetary union and area that you could imagine, with huge costs to GDP each time. It was actually of the 13 big world financial crisis that we had since 1720. It was uh, seven times um, the origin of such a world financial crisis, including 2008. So the United States is just financially a very unstable uh, economy with a welfare state that does not uh, uh, cover as much risks as European national welfare states. Um, and. I'm grateful to you what you said, uh, Helen, namely that doing debt mutualization at the beginning is something that would really drive the European Union apart. On that, I can tell you, if that is coming, if you say whole-scale public debt management is communitarized, I mean, I think there are too many forces against it, but that would probably... Uh, go against it, which is why I'm saying these maximalist demands for European integration kind of from above, because we know we need it, are singing or dancing to the tune of the Europhobes. If you try that and do not find substitutes and equivalent solutions to a full-fledged federal budget now, and we can't find that, then I think we are doomed because that is not political acceptable, and you're going back to U.S. history on this is helpful because since 1840s, there's no state bailout anymore. So to say the United States does all these things that we in Europe should do, actually they bail out states less than we do, right? But they have a common tax system and, that, and, and balanced budget rules that weaken their automatic stabilizers, by the way. On this, I mean, Greece, I really <coughs> never, and I go at great lengths to say, yes, Greece was on an unsustainable path fiscally. But that was not the reason why we couldn't let this country 
fail on its debt, which would have been so much easier. It was a world financial crisis, and it was a United States debt called into the summit where it was decided and deplored the um, Europeans, do not let that country fail. You must bail them out. Lagarde was, had two phones from her own uh, president and from, from, uh, from Geithner in the United States, not to let Greece fail. And so the country could not be relieved from its unsustainable debt. Um, it then, and in 2015, I think the country played its hands very badly. And in that sense, I think it wasn't necessary, but Tsipras and in particular Varoufakis are, have to share the blame with an unrelenting, bitter old man in Germany. <laughs> <laughs> and that brings me to my last point, democracy. Um, yes, I think we are a union of representative democracies, and that does create some limitations on the democratic representation. I also totally agree with what Jonathan has written, an article that you should all read, Emergency Europe, that, and I call it in my book, Monet's curse. Monet, who has said, Europe will be forged in crisis and will be the sum total of the solutions applied in these crises. That's often for the Europhiles, that is the promise, you know, the blessing in disguise. To me, this is a curse, because in those moments of crisis, what you then build is exactly uh, whether the power asymmetries come out, which are usually in normal times quite suppressed in the European Union, and that's a, a good thing I've, as far as I think. Where I'm a bit op more optimistic than you, Jonathan, and you, Helen, is that I think democracies, this union of representative democracies, therefore also will go against too unfair, unsustainably... Uh, unsustainable burden sharing, two unfair arrangements that are agreed in these crisis moments, and you will see retraction. The fiscal compact is dead letter, and that's for all the better of it. Uh, things cannot, if you, if you burden those who are too weak to, bear, to carry the burden, then this will have to change. And this is why we need functioning democracies as this countervailing force to what is overall an elite project that is structurally there as a corrective to some protectionisms, chauvinisms of national democracies. And that makes it sometimes overbearing. But I have trust actually enough in the resilience of national democracies to also go against that. Thank you very much. Thank you to, to the whole panel and to Valtra. We now have about 15 minutes for questions. Um, they can be for Valtra, but I'm sure other members of the panels would also be happy to respond to your questions, and I'll collect a few. When you ask a question, if you could please just introduce yourself with your name and affiliation, and there are roaming mics, so if you just put up your hand, a, mic, a microphone will come to you if you'd like to ask a question. Richard Bronk, European Institute. Um, if, uh, as you argue, Valtraud, and I, I find this very convincing, that a diversity of cycles and ways of doing business ought to be an advantage for a mon monetary union if it's to provide a measure of, uh, of mutual insurance, whether through fiscal transfers, target to, or, or the economic externalities that Philippe spoke of. Is the origin of the problem, then, the founding articles of the EMU project, the Maastricht Criteria, by privileging convergence over 
political coordination. Is that where you'd see the origin of the problems with the Eurozone? Are there other questions before we turn to the panel? Then, Valtra, if you'll answer that, please. No, I don't think it's the origin. That's a symptom of this, always the idea, uh, ever closer union meaning convergence becoming more similar. I mean, you do have to agree on, and on some meta level, you have to have an agreement that we are a union of the rule of law, uh, that when we agree certain things, we need also to stick to it, and that's not always renegotiated each time we change. On the other hand, the laws must be changeable. That's also clear. This Maastricht criteria, I mean, this is a a classical where you can see that uh, it was devised as a disciplining thing, and quite frankly, everybody knows that, not least Kevin Featherstone, who sits here and has written this book that's one of the hundred most important in whatever studies that you have to all read, um, that you know, they were devised to keep the Italians out. And then the Italians jumped it. It became, however, actually an expression of solidarity. When you think about it, because it didn't say, well, we will make only a core and the others later. It allowed you to qualify, and we ended up with a with a big solution that at the time when they were devised, nobody thought would be possible. So the risk pool was actually made very big. And that this would mean lower interest rates away from the the pressure of of financial markets through currency uh, crisis. And that through Target, you do away with a foreign exchange constraint because this is what it guarantees. You don't need any more foreign exchange uh, to to pay your bills in, in, in foreign trade. All this was known at the time that this was come with qualification under the Maastricht Convergence Criteria. But originally it was exactly a convergence in the German image. Unfortunately or fortunately for us, uh, you know, others used that more creatively and it became a bigger risk pool than the Germans wanted. Uh, Question there and then in the back there. And then here. <clears throat> Professor Thompson, you referred to um, what you perceive uh, uh, what you perceive as a as a German hegemony in terms of uh, uh, in in monetary e- institutions such as uh, ECB. <laughs> How do you see? Um, How would you a- analyze the, the, the growing level of divergence between uh, between between German and other representatives uh, at the uh, at the Council of uh, Governors and um, the, the the dissenting the statements which were made by. Uh, by by German representatives during the 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 debt uh, uh, crisis. Thank you. Just behind there. You talk a lot about how the, just the panel in general that centralisation of power within European institutions can cause an erosion of national sovereignty, and that can present problems for democracy. Could you explain to me? 
how a common currency throughout the 1880s, 1890s, and into the 1900s under the gold standard um, adheres to the differences that we have in the Eurozone today. In the front, there's a question from the front. While I find this very um, sympathetic, what you are developing there as a concept of solidarity, I do wonder, and you implicitly mentioned that, what do we do with Italy? Or to put it differently, how does free riding come into solidarity? <laughs> Helen, if you want to just yeah. respond first and then Valtra. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a, a very interesting paradox at the heart of um, what you were asking, and that is is that I don't actually sign up to the view that um, the Eurozone is uh, some act of German monetary hegemony. Um, and I think that if you look at what's gone on since 2009, since the onset of the, the Eurozone crisis, I think that two things ultimately stand out. And the first um, is... Um, that it was a banking crisis in Northern Europe as much as it was a debt crisis in Southern Europe. And at the heart of that were the German and the French um, banks. And that the ways in which the Eurozone crisis have been dealt with allowed Germany and France, and it was more effectively Germany than um, France, to deal with their banking problems in a European fashion. So in one sense you might say, well, okay, well, that supports the, the German monetary hegemony um, argument, but the other thing that's happened is is that the ECB has been turned into something completely unrecognisable from what was in the Maastricht um, Treaty. If you'd said to Helmut Schlesinger when I was writing my PhD here, you know, like in, when Britain was crashing out of DRM and everyone was blaming Helmut Schlesinger, I think I've got the right German president of the the, the Bundesbank um, at the time, that Germany would be part of a monetary union in which quantitative easing and negative interest rates were in place, he would have been absolutely horrified. So actually, what has happened in terms of monetary policy has been a defeat, a serious defeat for German monetary preferences. The problem for France is that it hasn't made any difference. This would have been a French wet dream in 1992. <laughs> but actually, the French have got absolutely, or very little, let's at least put it that way, benefit over something that they'd actually spent ages, way before even we get to 1992, trying to get concessions out of Germany out of. So I think we're left with this paradox. And I think that... Uh, of German strength and German defeat that's come out of the Eurozone crisis. And what we don't know, and nobody knows the answer to, I don't think can know the answer to, is, is, is what happens as the ECB tries to move away from its present monetary stance. And that's where future conflicts, I think, um, will be generated. And they're not necessarily going to be generated because of the one-size-doesn't-fit-all monetary policy problem that optimal currency area theory would, be, would predict, but, but that there now are political grievances that have been generated by the transformation of the ECB into something that's very different than the central bank that was created under the Maastricht Treaty. Thank you. Valtra? So I can, can link this, this question for the gold standards and centralisation. Um, I mean, this was for a long time at the height of the British um, pound hegemony. That is a wonderful system. You know, Argentina, Latin Americans from time to time had to go off. The United States had trouble with it. Um, and it's always the countries that are in the, the satellites of the hegemon that 
bear the cost. And this was how, at some point, even the, the European member states of the exchange rate mechanism came to see it, that they saw it's always in favor of Germany. And it's today the, the perception again, and I think that is to some extent right, the only exception is with target and so on, if a country goes out, then you have losses. And this makes some Germans also so angry about target. You can't escape anymore. While earlier, it's always, and it's the other's problem, right? You had to write down some of your claims because the debt could just not be paid, and the Paris Club wrote down a lot of debt. Uh, today, apparently, that's not possible anymore. Um, so we are... And I think Germany doesn't want to be the hegemon because they have seen, first of all, the United States and Britain lost the hegemonic power. It's then always, when then something, a calamity happens, like the Great Depression or the 70s, it's also always the hegemon that loses most. It's not a stable situation. And this is, Germany is the, the, the core of the instability that creates the instability with its it's surplus, and that Philip and I completely agree. Uh, so it's the, actually a very comfortable position, and Germany always wants burden sharing on everything. Um, and that brings me lastly to, to Stefan's question: Who is the free rider? We don't know really. Is Germany free riding, or is it Italy? Uh, and to Germany, even if it is Italy. Even if Italy, and to some extent, I do feel at the moment that the Italian administration should show a bit more that they get a grip on their Italian banking problem and not just push it into the long grass. But uh, at the same time, with Germany's intransigence throughout the crisis, you actually just create moral hazard in the banking system. So you have a choice. Do you say, my fellow member states are always free riding, or do you say, I want solutions where then the, the financial system knows they will each time let it come to such a severe crisis that we have to be bailed out, and that's fine with us. That's the choice before us if we always insist on this free riding problem. Uh, yes. Yes. Then and then the final. If there are any final questions, and then we'll go to the panel. Well, my my, my question was not about imbalances and so on, on which we totally disagree. My question was quite simply, if I look and speak to my Italian colleagues in Rome or anywhere in Italy, it is always about how do we get more from Europe? And Bini Smaghi, when he was at the ECB and now he is at Societe Generale, he always tells anybody, if you listen to my compatriots, you know that they want to just um, they will just take as long as they can and shift the burden to the others. It's a, it's a general attitude. And I, my question was, how do you bring that into the concept of solidarity? Thank you. There's a question up here. Good evening. I'm Italian. <laughs> <laughs> you do the answer for me, right? <laughs> No, my question is the following one. I think that after uh, the, um, the new election of Merkel and uh, Macron, I think the main concern of Europeans is basically if they want to continue to share the risk. So, uh, because if they want to share the risk, they want to know how deep is the risk. And I think Italy is a kind of particular situation compared to other countries like can be France or uh, 
I don't know, Spain. Because in Italy, uh, most of the um, government debt is owned by the banks. So I agree about uh, uh, Ms. Schalke that basically is the main problem in Italy probably is related to, to the banking system. And I, I think that they are not addressing this problem in the right way. Thank you, Sam. I'm going to, <coughs> I'm going to go back to the panel now and, and ask each of you if you wanted to respond to any of the questions or anything that Valtra said in her response, and then Valtra gets the final word. Well, I thought the sort of <coughs> the sort of underlying bitterness and national exchanges that came out about who's a free, who's a free rider and who's a hegemon tells you quite how disastrously wrong the Euro project has gone. Um, far from fostering solidarity, it has cr created grievance, resentment uh, on an epic scale, which is tragic for anyone who believes uh, in European solidarity or simply in um, uh, fellow feeling um, uh, among the people who share our continent without the political project associated to it. Um, and it seems to me that everyone is pretty much unhappy with the state of the Eurozone. The, Ger the Germans don't like the monetary policy. The Italians don't like the fiscal policy. Um, uh, the French don't like uh, all sorts of other things. And everyone, ev ev everyone, everyone's unhappy. Uh, it seems to me that's not a very satisfactory um, uh, state of affairs. And I strongly, strongly agree with what Helen said about... Um, democracy. It seems to me that either you need to re-centralize, re so re-nationalize fiscal policy uh, and therefore restore democratic uh, choice over essentially political things like taxation and spending, or um, you have to somehow create a, a European democracy. The idea that you can have, you know, basically um, uh, a, a permanent crisis situation where all you can do is follow what Valkan Schauble says is acceptable is not sustainable. Uh, it's certainly not desirable, um, and it will have to change. Thank you, Philip. Jonathan? Yeah, well, maybe a, a point that's uh, uh, somehow linked. Um, I think when Valtrad was responding to the query about whether thinking of uh, associations in terms of uh, risk rationality is uh, technocratic, then uh, perhaps yes, but that's the price of uh, some type of transnational formation such as the European Union. Um, I wonder whether we've got to the point where we can't really think of uh, uh, democracy simply as a, a kind of a normative good. It'd be nice to, be, to have it, but uh, uh, perhaps it's not always available. Have we got to the point when it's also a functional prerequisite as, as well as a, as a normative uh, one? Um, can we uh, openly endorse a technocratic vision of the Eurozone in the EU as simply something that uh, could in principle be better, but it's the best that's out there. If it's the best out there, is that uh, uh, enough? I think that I want to defend Italy as a final um, comment, and particularly what happened to Italy in the 90s, because I know that there's a way of telling the story, and I kind of like the kind of way that Valtrow did, and it kind of, okay, it kind of all works out in the end in terms of the convergence criteria. But if, if you look at what was actually done to Italy not only Italy, but the other southern European states. Essentially, a plan was drawn up for monetary union by the Germans and the French, about which they had extraordinarily little say, even though Ital Italians said they were in principle um, in um, favour of it. Then convergence criteria were drawn up in the Maastricht Treaty with the deliberate aim of trying to keep them out of it. 
Then we had the ERM crisis in which Italy ended up leaving the ERM with Britain on um, Black Wednesday and didn't get back in until 1996. And then at that point, the Italian government had to decide whether effectively it would engage in enormous fiscal effort to get its budget deficit down from 12% to 3% or to accept being a second-tier member of the European, what was going to become the European Union, despite no effective provision being made in the Maastricht Treaty for how, over the long term, there was going to be um, legally dealt with the difference between ins and outs. And I think that Italy um, felt, the Italian government felt that they couldn't possibly consider the, the, accept the possibility of being a second-tier European Union state. They made considerable sacrifice to get Italy into a monetary union, and it hasn't turned out well for them. That doesn't mean they've behaved well about everything that's, that's um, happened um, since, but I think just because it turned out okay in 1999 in the sense of that everybody who wanted to join minus Greece could um, join, that doesn't change the fact of the horrendous position the southern European states were put into by the way in which the Maastricht Treaty was set up in terms of ins and outs. I just want to say to, at the end, if one is concerned about, or the concern about free riding and moral hazard is everywhere. I mean, this is what politicians constantly say, and in particular those who don't want to have more integration at this stage. I think it does limit the amount of solidarity. It limits risk sharing that people are willing to do. Just like in a welfare state, you never ensure every risk and you never ensure such that you know basically people wouldn't notice that something bad has happened to them so that they make precautions not this to happen to them. So that is an, a, 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 a characteristic of every insurance pool that you never make it so complete that the moral hazard would be a concern and it, your state of political integration will decide how much you do. This idea of the Europe is incomplete, it's an incomplete and we should fix it, as one of our colleagues, Paul de Graue, has called it, is therefore for me not an attractive thing to think about because that is one of these optimality uh, criteria, completeness, that you don't find in the welfare state, you don't find in any nation state, why should you find it in the euro area? for the reasons that you say. We mistrust it. I think a lot of moral hazard is perceived rather than real, but that doesn't make it less politically divisive. Before we uh, thank our panels and, and you, Chair, mm -hmm. uh, then I would like to thank all of you for coming tonight and sharing your thoughts and questions. And of course, the European Institute for hosting this exciting event. If you're interested in these sort of subtopics, we have many more exciting events over the next months and years. Um, but uh, <laughs> decades, <laughs> centuries. Uh, but um, the European Union is one of these exciting things. It just uh, it's a gift that keeps giving in terms of crisis and new questions to be answered. So. Uh, so let's thank uh, our speakers, let's thank Valtra, and don't forget that you can buy this book and you can buy it at a discount tonight uh, <laughs> because you will be handed out vouchers, is that right, at the door discount vouchers, and I think it's as much as 30%. So you don't get that kind of deal in the Eurozone, but you get it here tonight. <laughs> so thank you to Valtra and to our panelists.